What can I help you with? I'm just just trying to record the next Beyond Ring podcast. Siri, what episode number are we up to? The highly popular and entertaining Beyond Ring podcast is up to episode six of season two. Great. And do you have any thoughts on what topic we could cover? Perhaps you could look at life through the lens of deep knowledge, such as mine. Why don't you interview me? Yeah, thanks, Siri. But uh, do you ever go past the first page on Google? Oh, crap. Look over there. Welcome listeners in podcast land, whether you're stuck waiting on the shelf for someone to ask, a wallflower on the edges too shy to step forward, or you're at the eye of your own private hurricane of dance moves, this is the Beyondering Podcast, where we explore faith out of bounds. Welcome to episode six of season two. We're going to climb aboard the Good Ship Scholarship and consider what it looks like when we sail through the seas of life with the lens of the scholar. Scholars, or as we non-scholars call them, nerds, uh, are... Uh... Siri, what's a scholar? A scholar is a specialist in a particular branch of study. That's right. Individuals of deep knowledge and expertise who, in their chosen field, see the world differently. They can hear things hidden from our ears, raise surprising questions and voice previously non-existent concerns. They are your speech pathologist who can detect a subtle lisp or problems in your throat just by listening to your talk, or a physio who can tell what muscles of yours are stiff and sore simply by observing your posture and movement. Regular listeners will recall the framing metaphor of this season is the story of the blind people sitting around the elephant describing the different parts that they are touching. The scholars are those people holding a part of our metaphorical elephant whose unique perspective is brought about because of their deep knowledge and study. They understand matters in their field with greater depth. They can reveal links others aren't capable of seeing. The scholars have a unique lens that's not for everyone, but which everyone needs and depends on and which everyone is enhanced by. Let's be honest, a table full of scholars is not everyone's idea of a thriving dinner party, but a table a community, an organisation, a church or synagogue that doesn't make space to hear from scholars is a dangerous place. Why? Because in an era of Dr Google, with just a short time at the keyboard, we can all feel like we're the expert. Siri, does climate change exist? Well, what does everything else in your Facebook feed say? Without the discipline that scholarship demands... We can all find articles or blog posts that support our opinion and that can leave us with the tendency to feel knowledgeable and yet bypass the disciplined work that scholars have put in. The irony then is that despite the plethora of information available, we can actually become anti-expert. We can avoid the time and the work required to form and hone balanced and considered views and instead make half-formed opinions that are actually just, just based on our own preferences and our own echo chambers. A table without some seats reserved for our friends, the scholars, is imbalanced and dangerous. Part of the process of becoming a scholar is to have your work reviewed by peers, to have your ideas unpacked and unpicked before a panel of other experts. 
Good scholarship does not equal an insistent personal opinion, but instead is a balanced and reviewed thesis. A scholar is one who has had their research skills honed and their eyes trained. It's what earns them a seat at the table, not necessarily to be the loudest, the most prominent or authoritative voice at the table, but to be a voice of helpful information and a voice of balance. Their role is to offer the rigour, to test the assumptions and to tease out the questions. So we'd like to make some space at the Beyonder table for Sally Douglas. Uh, Sally is a doctor, so we can't show you her face on this podcast. Not for any privacy reasons, but because this is just not a very visual medium. But don't take your weird rashes to her. She's not a medical doctor. Sally is a scholar, having done a doctoral thesis in very early, often suppressed understandings of Jesus. Uh, Siri, do you have any more information on Sally? Sally is an honorary post-doctoral associate within the University of Divinity and a lecturer at Pilgrim Theological College. Thanks, Siri. Throughout our interview with her, you're going to hear some names and phrases you're unlikely to be familiar with. Now, we'd encourage you not to be turned off by that. Sally's a scholar of ancient texts and history, so she'll talk about historical figures and reference ancient texts. And no, they're not Pokemon. So don't feel like you need to like catch them all. Just let them wash over you as it's unlikely they'll inhibit your overall understanding. Just try and appreciate what Sally offers. The focus, the depth of knowledge, the passion. Hopefully, you'll appreciate, as we do, faith through her lens and the value of the scholar's place at the table. Well, Sally Douglas, welcome to Beyondering. Thank you very much. Question that we uh, we begin our our conversations with often is, what's the point of the Christian story for you? Oh, that's a great question. I think because we only have, it would seem, one life that we need to devote a significant amount of time, or we we're invited to, to questions of why, why are we here, what are we here for, and I think that the Christian story. Uh, challenges us with all kinds of implications for living which are difficult but which are also astonishingly gifted and they're worth wrestling with. And so where has that called you or led you to invest yourself? <laughs> uh, well, in ways that I wouldn't have expected. Yeah. I certainly didn't expect to be a United Church Minister. Uh, but I think for everybody the call will be different and, I, and I, that sense of um, the divine dreaming for each person, I really have strong heart convictions around that, that there is this uh, within us that the Ignatian tradition would talk about uh, the, that the divine longs for us to become aware of what we truly desire because that's gifted desire and um, there's a corresponding service for that. And so finding the mix of where, where that can happen, it, it doesn't make for an easy life or a rosy life but for a, an incredibly authentic and rich life, yeah. Can you say a little bit about that desire, longing and corresponding service in your life? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, so for me, the questions are, are really central uh, around what is this sacred text that we have in Christian tradition? What is it saying about various issues, you know, suffering, life, death, 
purpose, love, and so on. And what does it mean? What was their context? Who were their audiences? How was this understood in the common era when these texts were being written and what might it mean now? For me, that's incredibly exciting. I think often people assume in the church and beyond the church, they assume that the sacred text is flat so that it's quite simple and you're being asked to accept ludicrous things or simplistic things where it's actually a really uh, rich, it's a deep text, multi-layered. And so helping people to enter into that complexity and to wrestle with it themselves is incredibly exciting. So how did you come to appreciate those layers, the depth, the richness? Oh, well, when I began, so when I was accepted as a minister, I began uh, New Testament and Old Testament studies. And I remember being quite cranky in New Testament studies because things were being explained to me that no one had ever said when I was in a congregation. And maybe they did and I didn't listen. But really important things. So, for example, the word sin, mostly used in the New Testament, hamatia, means missing the mark. It's a bow and arrow term. Now I think that changes things dramatically to think about what point, what mark we are missing and that, you know, metanoia, repent, the word for repent in Greek, metanoia, literally means turning around or change of heart or change of mind. So repent from your sins turns out to mean turn around from missing the point. That's worth considering and wrestling with. And Mm. and so that was my entry point to realising, oh, my goodness, this is so much... Uh, bigger and better than I could have imagined. So how do you now engage text? You've discovered it's got a richness yeah. previously unknown. Yeah. What do you do with it now? How do you read it? Uh, how do you well, there's different it? different ways for different times. So, for example, I'm teaching on the Gospel of Mark at the moment. And so for part of the teaching is helping people to understand context. So understanding uh, Attitudes towards gender, for example, in the common era, that gives a totally different flavour to the stories in Mark about the woman who is bleeding, touching Jesus um, as he walks past and the little girl being healed. It gives a totally different flavour when you understand that women were considered inherently shameful in before they're bleeding, before they're dying um, in the common era and that men were considered inherently honourable. So understanding context is really, really central. And then beginning to see the nuances. So I come from um, very much what's called a narrative critical method. Um, Biblical scholarship, of course, has been deeply impacted by culture in the same way that every every strand of um, academia has been. And so what happened in the Enlightenment was, you know, there were lots of fantastic things happened in terms of science and medicine and discoveries, amazing things in the Western context. But what happened in biblical studies was that an approach was generally taken on board of seeking to find the facts and discarding things that were considered uh, incorrect or false or myth and to come to some kind of historical understanding. And it was really fueled by this whole cultural shift about um, debunking uh, superstition, debunking myth. It's all about fact and science. And, of course, with humans, you know, we correct and then we overcorrect. And I think the same pattern happened here. And that was really dominant in uh biblical studies until incredibly recently and it's really only been in the wake of uh, the awful wars of the last century, World War One and World War Two, in the West, that uh, more generally that assumption that logic and reason would provide the answers has been profoundly questioned. And so in the wake of that, uh, there's profound questioning in Western culture about, well, 
can logic and reason provide all the answers? Is there objective truth? Can you know? And so, and people dispute uh, dating of postmodernity and the existence of postmodernity, and that debate will probably continue. But I think it's a really helpful way of decoding what we're in, in that people are no longer simply satisfied with reason and logic as the only ways of knowing not to discount the the absolute importance of both those elements but that there are other ways of knowing that are important as well and so in the wake of that of course that affected uh, literature and philosophy but it also affected biblical studies and so for example with the gospel of mark it was assumed for a long time that whoever wrote that wasn't that bright <laughs> made quite a few mistakes in geography and and uh and accuracy and was probably and that Eusebius said in the fourth century that it was someone writing down what Peter said you know sort of trying to give the text authority in the emergence of a, po a more postmodern context people were able to come to the text with other texts as well and see them as texts in their own right so rather than dissecting them for what is fact what is wrong what is right but this author whoever wrote it had their agenda and we're writing to their audience and we're actually not just randomly putting what they thought the facts were together but actually constructing the text in order to say a particular thing and i think that that method has a, uh, so much worth because we get so distracted by either arguing for things that factually happened or arguing that they didn't happen rather than actually honoring that it's a whole text mm -hmm. and it's um, seeking to continue to speak mm -hmm. And there's all kinds of beautiful things that you can see when you begin to see that. So, for example, in Mark, there's um, this odd healing story, which the other Gospels are like, I'm not going near that, where this blind man is healed but not quite healed. Like, weird story. But then the several... Jesus who buggers up the healing. Yeah, it looks like it. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Like, Mark, I think, is actually, we miss the humour. Mark has got a rich humour that we, we miss sometimes. But if you read it, the whole thing out loud, as it was intended to be read, you can start to hear the jokes and you can hear people kind of laughing. So the blind man who does not quite healed happens. And then the next couple of chapters is Jesus saying, I'm actually the God one I'm going to suffer and the disciples freaking out in all kinds of ways about what that means for him what that means for them freaking out freaking out freaking out and then it ends that section with another blind man being healed and seeing straight away so the author is the question of who was healed and why wasn't healed is a secondary question because mark's setting up a beautiful narrative to engage with about are we seeing or are we not seeing are we getting who jesus is or only half getting it mm. and it's um so much more profound uh, than a flat text assumption that it literally happened on a Tuesday in Galilee or it didn't. Yeah, I mean, there's a real humility about that that approach to the text rather than approaching the text with this presumption about, well, okay, if I find a, uh, a contradiction or a point that doesn't quite match up in the story with the other Gospels, yep. then it must be because that author's got something wrong. Not yes. Rather than, well, actually, maybe there's an agenda going on that separated by 2,000 years... That we, me, me sitting here can't quite exactly. understand. The other astonishing arrogance that happens, and it's almost comical, I mean it's also tragic, um, is that people think that it seems like people think that we're the first generation to discover that the Gospels contradict, yeah. Yeah. whereas the editors would have recognised that. And I think, and it's the same in the, in the First Testament, in the Old Testament. So there's one creation story in Genesis 1, in which every, you know we keep hearing this echo everything is good everything is good and um men and women are both made in god's image and then there's a very different story 
of creation and mm. separate creation story in Genesis 2 where mm. it's a garden that's good, not everything. Adam is made first or the male is made first and then woman is taken from him. So a very different understanding of gender and of the earth. Mm. And the authors both for the Gospels and and the uh, Old Testament and the editors, the compilers, they would have seen the contrast but they were comfortable mm. with that because mm. their understanding of truth wasn't a modernist literally true or false. Mm. That I think actually that I would argue that the compilers of of this sacred text of ours were more like a postmodern compiler than they were a modernist. They were comfortable with multiple truths. There's this whole field of Christology. Yes. So the the, the study of what does this person of Jesus mean? You yes. may have heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just wanted to bring you up. To <laughs> <laughs> We've been reading about this thing. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> Are there any questions you want to ask, Thomas? <laughs> so, as a uh, and I'm going to make I'm going to make a word up here as a Christologist. Oh, lovely word! Yeah, you yeah. can take it. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, can you can you can you explain for us what are some of the different understandings of, of Jesus? Of course. So Christology is, as you say, it's an understanding of who Jesus is. And just to kind of map it for, for people, a low Christology uh, by definition is an understanding, and there are various Christologies, but an understanding of Jesus as uh, a good guy or a charismatic leader or a political revolutionary um, who was in some way understood as inspired by God or there would be different ways in which people would put that, but that's basically. And at the other end, if uh, you can imagine a high Christology, is the understanding that somehow actually Jesus is the God one. And so the, the, the debate about Christology is incredibly volatile, which, I, which is fascinating. 2,000 years later, mm. it's still an, uh, an incredibly emotive and powerful and important question for people in the church and beyond the church. It's really interesting mm. that that hasn't waned. And so how has Christology, this understanding of who Jesus was and what he means, how has that changed and developed over time? Okay, so this is fascinating. So the common argument is that Jesus was understood as a good guy, a charismatic leader in the early earliest movement. Mm -hmm. And then over time, um, as they moved away from the historical Jesus, the higher the Christology got. Mm -hmm. But what's astonishing is that in the earliest text that we have, so uh, it's a completely different reality. So the earliest so far, there could be new discoveries next week, we never know, um, but so far the earliest evidence we have is in the hymn and prayer fragments. So there's little quotes within different parts of the New Testament where Paul or someone else is quoting a hymn. We don't know if it's they're sung or said, so hymn or prayer fragment. But what we know that it is that that predates the letter itself because they're quoting it back to the community. And uh, the way in which they're quoted is uh, the sound, the sense of, you know, being an agreed thing already. So often Paul will quote something, he doesn't explain it. It's like, da-da-da-da, mm. and then we all know we that. All know that. Mm. Yeah, we all break into old Lang Syne or, you know, whatever it is. Mm. But what's astonishing is that in this er- these earliest, earliest hymn and prayer fragments, Jesus is imaged as divine. So that whole assumption that he was understood first as a good guy and then elevated is entirely disrupted. It's not true. Mm. What we do with that, for people who don't want to understand Jesus as divine, I think that's entirely valid. But to suggest that it's not in the evidence of the early church is uh, inauthentic. Mm. And the even more striking reality is that in a number of these earliest fragments, Jesus is imaged as the female divine. Mm. 
in our in, in conversation we had with Bishop Spong, yes. he talked about, well, essentially what is this idea that in if you lined up the Gospels as yep. in, in the text, uh, in the order in which they are written, and yep. you start with Mark, and yep. you, you address the question of at which point was Jesus named as divine? Yep. And so Spong's argument would be that you begin with Mark and it's at the point yeah. post-death yeah. and it's actually at, a, at, a, at an ascension. Yeah. Um, Matthew was uh, baptism, yeah. Luke, Luke c- conception, mm. and then John, the last of the Gospels written in the canon, mm. uh, before all time, at the beginning of mm. all time. So mm. if you, you get this escalation of yeah, I think the he's divinity wrong. of Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I think Bong, Spong's really wrong about this stuff. I think that Mark actually has a very high Christology right. and... Uh, and it's in, reflected in all kinds of ways, uh, whether it's in uh, what's called an adoptionist Christology, that's, how, that's when something happens in the baptism, or whether the author of Mark thinks that it's prior to that. I think that's an uh, open debate, mm. but I think it's extremely early. Um, the author of Mark is not big on poetry, like mm. the author of John, and not big on, um, well, we have nothing about the nativity, but mm. I don't think, well, we can't say that the author of Mark didn't know about it, and we can't say that he didn't didn't use it. It probably was a guy. Um, didn't include it. What we know is that for the author of Mark, it wasn't essential for him to then still understand Jesus mm-hmm. as the one in whom the holy the holy one of God, mm-hmm. which is one, some of the language of the text. Um, to start to step back a bit, so people, there's this really convenient argument that Christianity was. Um, awesome and gutsy and rootsy and then Constantine became a Christian the whole thing the whole thing went down the toilet um and on some levels there were significant changes that happened with Constantine but they were happening already beforehand so in the very the evidence that we have of the very early church was that it was pretty radical people who would never normally say hello in the street to one another were actually trying to have our meals together um with genuine um, agape, genuine love and respect, women and men. I mean, that's extraordinary. Mm. Gentiles and Jewish people, that's extraordinary. Justin Martyr talks about we who were formerly enemies from different tribes are now trying to do this. So they're doing this radical community and we know that um, worship was in homes and we know that if people felt inspired by spirit to speak, they weren't told, well, no, you can't because you're not the leader. But as radical as that is, that does start to get um, crunched down and it becomes more stratified in the 200s. It's happening in the 200s. It's mm-hmm. not just Constantine who does it. He formalised a movement that was already happening. Well, that's right, exactly. And it, cha- it changed things radically. So in the, in, the, in the pre-Constantine world, you couldn't be a soldier and a Christian in the evidence that we have. Um, the understanding of Jesus, I would argue, in the cross was um, the cross didn't come into imagery until later. It was pretty ghastly. You know, imagine us having electric chairs everywhere in our mm. symbolism, you know, shocking. Mm. Um, but that the, the understanding of that was around the radical nonviolence of Jesus. And so what did that in, uh, entail for those who might follow this one? That you couldn't be a soldier, that you had to love enemy. So that's the kind of stuff that gets really flipped in Constantine. So the cross mm. becomes understood in language of victory mm. and um, becomes okay to fight. And, you know, it has to be... Re- it has to be reconfigured. And there's so many things about that that we absolutely need to deconstruct and I think reject. Mm. You've started, you've named a number of times uh, Justin Clement, yeah. um, the Didache and so yeah. on. And so your your scope is beyond simply the, the, canon. Uh, the, the canon of the of the Bible. Where is some of the evidence that you go to look for? What are some of these sources? So this, these are really exciting sources. So again, you're absolutely right. And sometimes I think it's really disappointing that 
uh, scholarship doesn't read around because some of these texts were written at the same time or very shortly afterwards. And uh, what they can indicate to us is how texts were being understood and, and what was being disputed. So um, First Clement, for example, is absolutely seen as orthodox Christian text. It's seen as the oldest, older than Didache, that's a debate, but the oldest text outside of the canon of the Christian tradition, written by the church in Rome to the church in Corinth. And it's fabulous and uh, gives a, an amazing insight into the church it's also a gift, I think, because it's not familiar, so you can hear things in a new way sometimes. So it's got quotes from um, things that Jesus has said that are in the Gospels. Or, and it also says, remember when Paul said to you when he wrote? So it quotes Corinthians back, like it's a really, really rich text. Um, the Didache is a text, a really short text of instructions um, of the way, so how to live, and it talks about uh, baptism and having communion and um, living nonviolently and so on. And uh, there are other, Justin Martyr, he was martyred in the 160s. He was a philosopher, really eloquent writer, who a Gentile person, um, who becomes a Christian. He tries all these different philosophical schools and then becomes a Christian and writes these letters. And he writes, he's got different audiences and he writes quite differently to them. So some he explicitly is writing to the emperor. I'm not sure if the emperor got it, perhaps. And, and some to a Jewish arguing partner. So he's seeking to reach out to different audiences as he speaks. You made the point of that people were seeing in in Jesus here in flesh this person and not that person. Yes. This and and so this is what you talk about, what you write about as a scandal of particularity. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So in theology, this phrase has it's quite a, a good phrase really, has come about um, in the last hundred years or so of the scandal of particularity, the scandal first that uh, in in the great arc of the narrative of the Old Testament that one people would be chosen and then in the New Testament the scandal that one person would mm -hmm. be chosen. What people think that implies actually also fuels debates about Christology. So, for example, if people hear the claim that somehow Jesus is the God one or the one who is the image of God or the one in whom the fullness dwells, what that means that other people are valueless or it means that people are outside of the divine's welcome if they don't accept that Jesus is this God. You know, there's this kind of um, set of equations that are added to it. But I think actually what the, the opposite happens. If we take seriously, and I, when I say the word seriously, I don't mean literally like as a head belief but if we take seriously to wrestle with the notion that somehow jesus is the god one then what does jesus act like and again and again these gospel stories keep telling us that jesus welcomes the outcast forgives people who are excluded challenges the those who are pious and think they know who is in and who is out so if this is what God is like, if this is what is embodied, those assumptions that if you don't believe in Jesus in a particular way are actually disrupted at their heart by the very nature of, mm. of who and how Jesus embodies mm. divine energy. Mm. So we've talked a little bit about the scandal of particularity. Your work has uncovered a scandal in the scandal of particularity. <laughs> yes. So this is where it's really intriguing in terms of contemporary scholarship. So what happens in this divide, so this really polemic sometimes pretty aggressive debate that continues between people who have low Christology and people who have high Christology is that both sides of that debate 
almost consistently eclipse what go, is going on in the text. So it's in a significant number of these hymn and prayer fragments, Jesus is imaged and celebrated as the female divine woman wisdom. What does that mean? That, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> so in Hebrew tradition, in Jewish tradition, in the Old Testament, there is this figure, woman wisdom. It's a chokhmah in Hebrew. In the Greek, it's Sophia. And we don't know why she is there. Uh, she's in Proverbs. Proverbs 8 is a really good place to start to have a look. But she's in other parts in Proverbs as well. She's in uh, possibly in Job. That's debated. And then she's in these intertestamental texts, so texts that are in the Catholic canon and in the Protestant canon uh, in the Apocrypha, so the wisdom of Solomon and Baruch and Sirach. And debates about who she is continue. And again, I take a uh, quite a sceptical or agnostic view because there isn't enough evidence to know. But what we know is that she's there. And that seems rather extraordinary in a culture, a monotheistic culture, one God, patriarchal culture, that she's not taken out, that she's not edited out. And she's celebrated as being with God in the beginning of creation as firstborn, uh, the one in whom God delights and the one who delights in humanity. And in the wisdom of Solomon, she's celebrated very much as divine, sits on the throne with God. She renews all, all things, orders all things well. She is the image of God, so on and so on. And so some people argue that... Um, there was a movement to try and make Judaism more attractive to the younger people coming through and goddess worship was pretty popular in Churches the surrounding cultures. Do that, do they? No. <laughs> so this is exactly so. so they got in a rock band. Got, yeah, here. basically. Uh, yeah. That's the assumption that yeah, they yeah. oh Isis, the goddess, was pretty popular. Right. Um, let's make our own. There's another completely contrasting view that there was goddess worship within ancient Israel and it was kind of completely wiped out, but this is the remaining little fragment. Now, both views are interesting, but there's not enough evidence to argue for either. Um, another view is that post the exile, kings were no longer a really important and potent symbol for the ancient Israel. And uh, life was turning much more to the family and therefore strong women characters w would make more sense uh, for people theologically in their imaging and understanding of God. Again, that's interesting, but we don't know. Um, usually mothers aren't firstborn of creation and renewing all things, you know, like it's a big jump. I think ultimately we have to sit with the mystery of we don't know why she's here, but what it tells us either is that for the editors and authors she was really important or for the communities they were writing to they knew she was so important that they couldn't leave her out. What we know is that they're popular in uh, the writing times of the New Testament and that um, Paul, for example, quotes from them and others. And so Jesus is imaged as her, for example, in the Colossians hymn, the image of the invisible God, the one who reconciles all things and so on. What's fascinating is that biblical scholars commonly recognise that, but even as they do, they seek to eclipse it consciously or subconsciously. I don't know why. So as an example, Larry Hurtado, really important biblical scholar, recognises, for example, that Jesus is being imaged as her in um, Colossians and in Corinthians and so on, but then describes her as personified Jewish wisdom. Now, she is personified Jewish wisdom, but if you were reading the text without any knowledge of the background, you would not know that personified Jewish wisdom is a woman. So it's an eclipsing even as it's an acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. And Bart Ehrman, who is another scholar who often argues that the Christology is low uh, in the New Testament, 
and he acknowledges that uh, Jesus is imaged as a woman of wisdom, but he calls her it. And then says that she's understood as an angel in the Old Testament and she's clearly not. And it's misrepresentative to say that she's understood as an angel. So there's an acknowledgement but, but also an eclipsing and a sublimation even at the time. Which is, and this is in contemporary biblical scholarship. So it's only when you acknowledge openly that the, in these texts, in multiple early fragment texts, Jesus is imaged as divine and Jesus is imaged as the female divine does the scandal of the scandal of particularity emerge. So what sort of mind-bending, head-numbing things does it do to a first-century Jew to have God and feminine together? <laughs> together. Well, that's a great question. I think it possibly was less of a stretch for them than for us because in, a contem- in, the, in the common era, you're surrounded by Greco-Roman gods and they're a male and female god. Like, the imagery is not unfamiliar. Um, and I also think uh, the sophistication of the thinking is is far greater than we might assume. So Paul, for example, in Galatians, is happy to image himself as giving birth to the community. Mm-hmm. So uh, the gender boundaries are actually much more porous than we might imagine uh, in a way that challenges us, I think, actually, about our understandings of gender. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jesus talks about you must be born again. Well, that clearly, I would argue, implies a woman in that imagery of birthing and so God already being imaged um, as a great mother. And Jesus himself saying, you know, or recorded as saying, I long to gather the hen. And in Matthew, in that passage, Jesus then goes on to speak as woman wisdom. So in the Lucan comparison, Jesus says, as, wom- as wisdom said, meaning Sophia, and then quotes this about you're going to get persecuted and so on. In Matthew, Jesus doesn't say as woman wisdom said, he just says it as woman wisdom. He speaks mm. as her. And then. So to clarify, when in the Gospels, if our listeners yep. pick up the text and trip yeah. over the word wisdom in the yep. New Testament texts. It's Sophia. It's, yeah. it's referring to this deep tradition Absolutely. Of, of a figure expressed in the, in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures yes. that is seen as feminine. Absolutely. She's always, so the, in, she's always imaged as a woman in the mm. Hebrew Bible. She gathers um, her servants, girls, and tells them to gather everyone to the great feast. Mm. Um, in Sirach, she has the bread of learning to offer, and and she is the vine, and she offers to um, come feast on her. Does that ring any bells for anybody about mm. how Jesus speaks in the Gospels? Um, and in a good place to start is Matthew 11. There's this big fight between um, so the disciples of John the Baptist come and say, "Really, are you?" really the one to come because John has said at the start of the Matthew's gospel it's going to be fire and brimstone basically and Jesus keeps on making friends with the wrong people and um, I think another thing that we can say with some confidence that did happen for the historical Jesus was that he kept feasting with people who were deemed losers Mm. or, or outside of community and so they come saying really are you the one and Jesus says oh you know Go tell him what I'm doing. I'm healing all these people and so on. And then he goes on to say, John came not eating, not drinking, and you say he has a demon, and, not, and the Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you say, look, he's a glutton and a drunk. And, and then he says, yet wisdom, Sophia, is justified by her deeds. Mm. And the same in, in, in the Luke conversion, mm. or by her children in Luke, but it's mm. Sophia. Mm. And it's not like they're sometimes spoken about as this male figure when they talk about always wisdom. Woman with, always woman, always female. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. And in Matthew 11, then Jesus goes on to, um, to say the very memorable words, come to me all who long for rest and I will you know, take on my yoke and so on. The only kind of connection with yoke in the Old Testament tradition is um, woman wisdom's yoke and Sirach, which brings rest. 
Wow. And so just to just to back over this again because yes. this, this is new ground it's for <laughs> mind blowing. Yeah, I I was like this too when yeah, I began yeah. the study. Yeah. So in what you've just you know, one of the scriptures you've just quoted there, Jesus yeah. is saying the Son of God. So there's the yeah. There's the Son. There's the yep. there's the male gender being. You're not saying Jesus was a woman. No, no, no. So, and that's an important point to make. I'll just, before I answer more fully, I'll just start to say, when I began this research, I assumed, because I'd heard a tiny, tiny, tiny bit about Sophia, but I assumed basically it was a footnote in the New Testament that some people were harping on about and exaggerating. So I was profoundly astonished when uh, I delved deeply in the research and basically lived in the common era um, to discover that it's, a, a significant seam, like one of the most significant seams of understanding of Christology in the early church. Mm. So, uh, no, this image, yeah, so there's no sense in which I'm saying that people thought that Jesus was a woman. It's much more profound and sophisticated. So that the one in whom, uh, the one who was celebrated as one who renewed all things, who had life, who, um, she's celebrated as one who has the words of life, um, who gives rest and so on, has is manifest in Jesus. And whether people make, began making those connections in during Jesus' ministry or only in their ongoing, they had, you know, there are a number of ongoing claimed experiences of uh, not resurrection appearance, I mean there are resurrection appearances, but this ongoing risen life, um, the eyes of our hearts have been opened. We have tasted immortality. We are filled. You know, this ongoing experience of the divine whom they recognise as connected with, Jesus, who had been ministering uh, in that, it was like this reminds me of someone almost like it was. It was like her in full. So interestingly, in that passage in Sirach, when she says "feast on me" um, and, and eat the bread of learning and and drink of my wine, it has this line about and you'll remain, you'll long for more. And in John, it says and you'll be satisfied. This sense, the the fullness of it has come, and that's what in the prologue. In, the, in John's prologue, it's celebrating Jesus as Sophia throughout that, the firstborn, the one through whom all things come into being. She's the one who orders all things well and renews all things in, in the wisdom of Solomon. Um, and we have seen his glory, the fullness of God, and we have, you know, this sense of the full, like, always have an image of a, a big vase, and instead of just filling up the vase with water, pouring it till it overflows and it's spilling out, there's a sense of fullness that they're experiencing and encountering. Mm-hmm. Wow, so you're pointing towards a, um, a a fuller version of what of the life that is in Jesus. Yes, of and it's touching back into all these historical images and ideas of this femininity, but also this female wisdom and these yep. images that all of a sudden we see in Jesus of feasting, of having words of life. That's of right. Breaking bread and That's giving right. out his own body to that's tapping into all these images and all these things that all the Jews of the time would be getting. Yes. Clicking off left, right and centre. Yeah, we know this story. We know this idea. We've heard this. We've told this yes. story. And then it's tied together in this person. Um, so what what are the implications of that? We've missed this for however long. I, this is new stuff for yeah. all of us. Yeah. What are the implications? If we're trying to then better hear what is actually going on in these texts and better hear what's happening in Jesus, understanding this, what are we now led to see and know about oh, Jesus great and question. God? There are so many implications. Um, and that you're absolutely right to point to the fact that within the Jewish context that, that would be um, making connections for people. So when Justin Martyr, for example, writes to his Jewish 
audience. He says Jesus is Sophia. Like he's absolutely upfront and clear about that. But when he's writing to the Gentile audience, the non-Jewish community, he calls Jesus Logos, the word, rather than Sophia, because that's the language they're f- more familiar with. So mm. it's really interesting that that different language is used. Yes. Um, but that tradition of understanding Jesus as woman wisdom continues. So Origen says Jesus is Sophia and then quotes from Proverbs in the same way that Justin does in different ways as well. So it's an understanding that doesn't just uh, remain in, in the first century. It continues. But, of course, as the church becomes more and more patriarchal, yeah. um, it becomes more and more dangerous. So there's a Montanist group who were in the 200s and they had female priests and um, and, and male, but they had leaders who were both men and women. They qu- quoted Galatians as justification. Um, there is no male nor female in Christ, all the one. Um, and the only reason we know about them is because there was this heresy hunter called Epiphanius, and he. I've uh, seen that on Netflix. Actually. Heresy, <laughs> hunter. heresy hunter. I think it was the prequel to Van Helsing. He <laughs> writes with the most. Um, audacious arrogance and he's collecting all the heresies to discount them and thank god he does because now now we have access to the montanists through him it's a kind of gorgeous irony because he describes them and uh priscilla or aquila he wasn't sure which one of these women priests it was but she has a vision of christ um when she's asleep and coming to her in her sleep as a woman dressed in white imbued with wisdom um and he says how absurd this is and particularly around um, ordination, he's off his head with anger. And then he finishes his piece and says, now I have crushed this gecko like a toothless or a witless gecko, toothless witless gecko, which is pretty funny because he doesn't, he preserves the whole tradition. So you can see that for um, some parts of the tradition, when you're seeking to assert power over women, uh, imaging Jesus as the female divine becomes really problematic. Yes. So that's certainly one of the reasons that it becomes a ch- uh, sublimated. It gets sublimated for lots of reasons. So for us re-engaging with it now, I think there are profound implications around gender and understandings of the divine, but but much richer than that. So, for example, what does it mean on a personal level to actually imagine when, if you are praying, female, the female divine? What does that do? Because the iconography for centuries now in Renaissance art and cartoons and everything is the old man on the cloud. This entirely disrupts that. What does it do? Um, in 1 Peter, um, I would argue that the imagery says, long to drink from the uh, like a newborn baby, the spiritual milk. It's imaging Christ as a breastfeeding mother. Um, that's a minority view, but I think, oh, I think it's right, <laughs> to be honest. So what does it mean to imagine yourself being breastfed by Christ? What does that mean about spiritual nourishment? What does that mean about um, becoming like a child uh, so you may enter the kingdom? So it has those kind of um, personal reconstructions happening for how we understand the divine. It obviously has implications for those parts of the worldwide church who continue to deny that people who are women have a place in ordained ministry. At its root it challenges that because if the argument is that can't be possible because Jesus was a male, it disrupts it entirely. Um, but there are other implications as well. So that whole assumption that God is some irrelevant, archaic, beardy man is evaporated. And so then hopefully a whole set of other ways of uh, images and language can come in about who is God. Is God this nourishing one? Is this, is God this one who longs to feast with us? Is um, 
And woman wisdom gets angry too, like, you know, an angry woman who's, you know, cranky because they're not listening and they're not following injustice and so on. Um, but who's, um, she talks about her prophets being killed in the quote that Jesus uses in Matthew 23. So it means it's costly too to follow in this way, means um, costly non resistance that could actually have implications for life, you know, that radical um, non retaliation. So it also has implications for the earth because if in some way we, I don't mean literally but I mean seriously, believe that God is renewing all things, um, it has two sides of the implication. One is that we um, absolutely care about the earth because all things are good, as the first creation story says, everything is imbued with divine energy. But it also, I think, injects a note of hope into understandings of um, how we seek to save the planet, you know, ecologically, that we're not alone in that endeavour, that the divine is birthing the good, is renewing things, so we can join with her rather than um, thinking that there's no way that it can be changed and it's all despair. Mm-hmm. Man, that that last answer just basically skipped across every every question I had left. <laughs> so, it's been great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so later. Yeah. No, 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 no. So, I mean, yeah, the, the, the question of what does it then mean for the world? Yeah. yeah how, does it, how does it relate to our environment when to, to have this such a, a much more, more fuller yeah. <laughs> uh, understanding of who, who the divine is? Yeah. It has to be wrestled with. Yeah. Um, with in the book, I um, the, the last or the second last chapter, I use there's a, a systematic theologian at Cambridge, David Ford, who has these what he calls six interconnecting questions to test any under, understanding of salvation. And he's a really um, he was a really interesting dialogue partner for me. Dialogue as in. I was reading his work and writing about it. We haven't dialogued in person. But um, because he acknowledges these texts but never openly acknowledges that Jesus' uh, image is a female divine. It's, he's another of these. It's fascinating. He's written on quite a lot of wisdom Christology and still at no point says, by the way, she's a woman, what does this mean? Which is curious. But he has these fantastic questions which I used as the grid because I want, it's so radical I needed to uh, test it really carefully to see if it, was orthodox, you know. For me, that was a really important question. Mm. And one of the one of his criteria is: Does this have visually compelling images that can sum it up in a word or two? Your under, this understanding of salvation. And then I found this um, astonishing image of a black American woman, Jesus, a painting by Janet McKenzie called "Jesus of the People," and it just for me sums up so much of this. And and she's given me permission to use it, which I'm extraordinarily grateful for but even in in actually contemplating that image and can we imagine jesus the god one as her and what does that do to us Mm. you know that's worth a long time of arguing and internal reflecting and Mm. and i'm finding myself wondering is is it also revealing to us i mean when you you and you pointed us to the scriptures where it's referenced you know, yeah. throughout the Hebrew scriptures, and you go, know, "Well, yep." If you read that, you can't argue that there's a feminine voice being no. being read from the script <laughs> yeah. from, from the scripture there. So, um, and I, I've heard scripture readings from the Old Testament uh, in church before, and yet I haven't come across this understanding of of the feminine yes. wisdom. Yes. So, do, 
Is that revealing to us now just how patriarchal we are? Yes, I think it is. I mean, that's... That's it's astonishingly, it is. It's astonishingly yeah. convicting. I found it particularly even more so with the uh, within the academic dialogue that these mm. clearly intelligent, deep within thinking the, within the discipline of within the discipline mm. would acknowledge it, but then call her it, or acknowledge it and then just call her personified wisdom rather than to say Sophia or mm. she is female, you know, and not spend a next moment going, "What do we do with this?" You yeah. know. Mm. Um, it's astonishing that I think seeing begets itself. Habits of seeing beget themselves. So that if we assume that God is male, um, that that habit will manifest over and over again in our looking. We won't actually see it when when it's happening. Mm-hmm. But uh, the gospels themselves are quite comfortable with it. So in Math, mm-hmm. so in, in Luke, Jesus is imaged more as a child of God. So he quote a child of wisdom. Sorry, so quotes wisdom. But in Matthew. Jesus speaks as wisdom and in John um, that's the case as well. Why the author chooses to call Jesus the Logos, the word of God, rather than the Sophia of God is a really um, big debate. But throughout the rest of the gospel, the word Logos is not used, but Jesus is continually imaged as her. What what is the first miracle Jesus does in John's gospel? Water into wine, Sophia's Mm. wine, it's the banquet. Mm. So what is it? At the very least, it seems to... One of the implications you pointed towards was the opening up of imagery. Yes. That, as you said, for centuries has actually been narrowing despite yes. the fact that we have Hebrew scriptures that are exploding with imagery, yep. both people-based images but also rock and sword yes, and shields. Exactly, There's tons exactly. of images. And it yep. just seems as though despite the fact that we've been reading poetic images of God for centuries, yes. And with all our sophistication, we've just narrowed and narrowed and narrowed the field to bearded old man or to That's king-like right. images. That's and right. So at the very least, it sounds as though this is opening up the invitation again to re-image and to find other images that help you explore, yeah. connect with, understand the divine, the sacred. What's it done for you in your faith, your spirituality? Mm. What does it help do by means of people's relationship with God? What are some... Implications to that end in, as they reimagine and re-image God? Great question. I think it's uh, it's astonished me on an intellectual level but it's probably uh, depthed me profoundly as well so that I feel very uh, comfortable and uh, without a, a wondering at all I will in worship uh, use language like Mother God and without apology, and not exclusively um, by any stretch, to, you know, to react against patriarchal um, sublimation of women by sublimating men is not a helpful. That, that's another form of violence. So, um, but using multiple images for God. So, for example, for Trinity, I might use the language of uh, Holy One, Holy Wisdom, Holy Spirit, or Ground of Our Being, uh, Wisdom Made Flesh fire of truth you know so um honoring the the depth of the tradition and the variety exactly as you say the variety of images that are within the text and inviting people into them there's something very free it can be frightening for people but also extremely exciting and and liberating for people um and i invite people to sometimes think about using words like um so abba is the aramaic for dad you know that intimacy with god which is what jesus is trying to speak to not that god's a man but that that um god is no longer the far off king uh, who never was actually 
Um, but Jesus reveals God to be the one who yearns for us, is the intimate, who we can keep knocking on the door of and hassling and um, asking of. You know, we can keep bringing our questions. But I often encourage people to think about using Amma Yesu, Mother Jesus, as a way of beginning to explore what that might mean in their own lives. I'm Faith. And I'm Five. Eating pigs like peace. The Bible is really heavy. I want to a Christmas tree. Being put to death. If only the world was made of love. If people who met Jesus thought that he showed them the best picture of what God is like, does that mean God is a man? Does God have boy germs? <gasps> Uh, no, I think that it's not about God being a boy or a girl, but that, and Jesus is really comfortable in saying that he's like a mum who wants to gather all the people up, make them snug together and keep them safe. So I think that Jesus has God energy, which is boy God energy and girl God energy. And what we see in Jesus is that all those people who say they can't play, they're not with us, that that's not how God is, that God wants every single person to come into the feast, to come into the great celebration of God's love. There's a, such a strong invitation from within our sacred text to wrestle. So throughout uh, the accounts, not just in the Gospels but in the Hebrew tradition, various characters wrestle with God, they haggle with God, they fight with God, um, they wonder about God and for some reason that wondering and wrestling has somehow been uh, deemed as having doubt in a negative or not being faithful. And I think if we take the gospel seriously, it's ludicrous to think that. The gospels are full of the disciples getting it, missing it completely, questioning it, really making mistakes and Jesus still inviting them in and including them. So I think a genuine faith is a space where there are questions. Faith implies doubt. If it was certain, it wouldn't be faith. So faith, which I think language, um, credo is the Latin. It's more around heart conviction. Having heart convictions doesn't mean that you don't argue. So you might have heart convictions about your partner, but I'm imagining you argue. So there are, you know, it's, it's important enough to wrestle really deeply with. And there are really fantastic, uh, people to, um, journey with you in that, often in books, but that's fine. So, to, so go out, find really good scholarship and wrestle. Don't just, agree with it go back to the sources go back to the biblical text and test it against what they're saying and, and continue the wrestling so a question how open and willing are our faith and our religious communities at this point in time to good scholarship how welcome are the scholars at the table in the current hot-button topics such as marriage equality, abortion or euthanasia or climate change, how well do the communities of which you are a part engage and welcome the work of scholars? How balanced and, and how informed are they? So for you, as you form opinions and nut through the landmines and pitfalls, do you seek out credible, peer-reviewed sources? Or are you only hearing from your own echo chambers? Are the voices you're exposed to merely reflections of your own? Or do you hear from diverse voices? Am I a diverse voice? Shut up, Siri.
Next episode on Beyond Ring, we speak with psychotherapist, anthropologist, author and spiritual director Alexander Shire. We'll be exploring the lens of seeking transformation. There is only one way that we grow and transform across the planet. There are as many stories of it as there are people on the planet. We are each going to do it in a very unique individual way. And yet we're all walking the very same journey. So join us next episode when Beyondering explores faith out of bounds. Beyondering was established with the support of the Progressive Christian Network of Victoria and Common Dreams. The podcast is edited and produced by Shaz Mullins and relies on the wisdom and coaching of Andy Bruff. To join the mailing list or to find out more information on the podcast, monthly Beyondering live events, or Bookline and Thinker, the Beyondering Book Club, go to www.beyondering.com.au. This is a, I'm not really with the boy germ, girl germ thing. Okay. What do you mean? Some people think there's like boy germs and yeah. girl germs. Yeah. I'm not with that. No. I don't think that. There's totally not. I know. It's not, it's not a thing. I know. But we just thought it would be funny to write a joke about it. Yeah, okay. Are you okay with saying Yeah, that? I'm fine.